Hey, Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She Wrote or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. I'm your host, Bridget Keys, And I'm your co-host, TJ West. And today we are talking about the season one episode, It's a Dog's Life. Tej, do you want to give a summary of the episode? Okay, so in this episode, uh, Jessica goes to visit a, uh, her cousin, as I recall, right, played by Lynn Redgrave, who's like the secretary, personal assistant to a wealthy... She's the horse trainer. Horse trainer, yes, to this wealthy guy who goes fox hunting, apparently. <laughs> the things that wealthy people do, who ends up dead, and then, but it turns out that... The lawyer was the one who did it. Is the essential thing that we need to learn because That's he all wanted you really to... Need to know the lawyer, right? Did because it. apparently, by tangling up the inheritance, he would be able to do stuff with the money, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It, it, no, but... it does make sense. It does. I make mean, sense. In, a, in, a, in a twist, in a sort of garbled sort of way, but it's so not the, the whole most convincing. Yeah, so the the, the the shtick of the episode is that the guy dies very early on in the episode, uh, the wealthy man, and. That he, they find out he's left his inheritance to the dog, right? And then mm, chaos right. ensues because his kids want the money. His grandkid wants the money. Uh, nobody wants Abby, Jessica's cousin, to have any access to their estate anymore. But she, of course, is taking care of Teddy. And so anyway, it all, as TJ saying, it's a sort of convoluted plot that results in us learning that really the lawyer is the one who did it because... He wanted to somehow ensure, you're right, actually, it made total sense to me when I was watching and taking notes, and now it Exactly. Makes it makes no sense. Because he, cause it hinges on the idea, essentially, that because the inheritance would be so tied up with the dog and with the, with the heiress trying to get it and all this stuff, he would figure, he would magically figure out some way to make use of it to help pay off his debts, I guess, or that they would... Yes, because he would, he would continue being employed and he'd be getting his hourly fees as a lawyer... He could probably tap into Teddy's trust, and so he's in debt, and that way he can uh, pay his right. way out of I'll, debt. Whereas if the in, if the inheritance was clean and tidy and everything was done, then um, he wouldn't have any hourly fees to bill, and he right. needs so the money. So just one quick linguistic note for our listeners. Um, Bridget says lawyer, as most people do, whereas I say lawyer, which is a very like, Southern-esque way of saying the word. <laughs> so I just needed to point that out, because Aaron and I, my, my boyfriend and I have a long-standing uh, c- c- Lawyer. lawyer, you know, like they. Well, it makes sense. It's the word is law, lawyer. They, they practice law. They don't practice law. <laughs> you know so, that actually I mean, <laughs> takes me to something I did want to talk about, which is um, there's a real juxtaposition here between its faux the episode's faux Britishness, uh huh, and its deep Southness. Yep. So we open um, with. Uh, well, we open with someone drugging the horse, which is, I think, a common trope in Murder, She Wrote. I think we're going to see drugged horses again, but they're they're going fox hunting, like English fox hunting. And they're all in the red coats and the the the, the riding boots. And the, yep. I didn't grow up doing equestrian, so I don't know the vocabulary. Right. But it looks super <laughs> British. Right. 
But later, um, at the coroner's inquest, which is also a British thing, that's not an American yes, thing. Yes, I, I too was happy. I was like, what am I? Did I, did I suddenly magically transport into an episode of Poirot or Miss Marple? You did like, suddenly. When do, since when do we do inquests? We have an inquest, which is very British, except that we have a Confederate flag in the courtroom where we're having the I inquest. I did not notice that. So it's, it's a really confusing setup. Are we in England? Are we in the Deep South? What is this? But that makes but that makes sense because you know there is a, a strange way in which the American South has fetishized its its connections to Britishness. Like they specifically modeled themselves after British aristocratic behaviors, and that's part of the reason that like the novels of Walter Scott became very hugely popular in the South, particularly like in the post or in the pre-war era. So yeah, there's a very strong connection between the American South and the British, which a lot of people outside the South may not recognize, but has long has long been the case. I'm very glad that we have you to share your southern roots with us. Do you consider yourself a southerner? Uh, it depends. Like, not not really. Like, Okay. Well, I'm glad we have you to share your West Virginia, your Appalachian roots, which are close enough to the south that you can inform a good northerner like me of what's going on. So, yeah. So, I mean, not that takes us a little far afield, but clearly that's something that, you know, that murder she wrote is picking up on. And that sort of that strong connection between those two different regions. Yeah, well, and I, I think it shows that Murder, She Wrote is very cognizant of its um, its roots in, like, traditional British murder mysteries, right? That we mm-hmm. were borrowing some of those tropes. But, yeah, we're going to talk about, um, maybe let's talk about the guest stars, because that's something we love to do. We do. And I, I love the Red Graves. Like, I mean, who do- I mean, honestly, though, who doesn't love uh, the Red Graves? Lynn and Vanessa being the most famous. But also, I mean, the Richardsons, obviously, the second generation. Um R.I.P. to Lynn Redgrave, who is no longer with us. But she has, you know, what's interesting then, particularly in terms of it's the, you know, the um, connections between the British and American South is that the American Southerners are so contemptuous of her. And it's like, I mean, she has a posh British accent. It's not like she's Cockney or like, you know, she's not a Yorkshire woman. Like she has like that polished Queen's English kind of um, British persona so it's all the more striking than that they seem so yeah and I think that that, that was really interesting because she's um, positioned as Jessica's cousin right Denton Denton reveals that Jessica's visiting her cousin Abby and staying in the, the cottage on the property with her uh, and this is the first cousin that we've met and of course Jessica's most famous cousin is Emma McGill played by Angela Lansbury herself mm-hmm. uh, who is Cockney and um, really sort of working class but uh, here we have that Angela, uh, Angela, JB obviously has relations who are quite posh from the UK. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, so then there's also Forrest Tucker, who I, I love absolutely as an actor. I mean, he's not usually famous. I think that most of our listeners may not even know who he is, like if they're younger, because he's just someone who's faded away from consciousness. But he was well regarded in his day. Like he was in MAME, or, I'm sorry, anti-MAME, the, the movie. Um as Mame's love interest, who also was a Southerner uh, and died tragically in a mountain climbing accident. But he was also most famously in F Troop, the sitcom starring Ken Berry. So, yeah, he has a a good lineage and he doesn't have much to do in this movie, but, or sorry, this uh, episode, but I do enjoy just seeing his presence anyway. And we have a number of people who will come back in later episodes. So James Hampton, who plays the vet, will come back in Trial by Error. Oh, right, Lenore right, right. Kasdorf, mm-hmm. who plays Trish, will also come back in Trial by Error. And she comes back in two other episodes. Um, Dean Jones, who plays the lawyer Boswell, will come back in Harbinger of Death. 
he's also very well known in a lot of Disney films of the 70s. Like, he was hugely employed by Disney. He just died a couple of years ago, actually. And he was everywhere. He was, yeah, I think he's in That Darn Cat. He's in <laughs> that a series cat. of that, of those live action comedies that Disney made throughout the 60s and 70s. So if anyone my age recognizes him, that's probably why. Yeah. But my point was, it's a real coterie of um, frequent guest stars in Murder, She Wrote, which mm-hmm. is a thing that we've seen now in a couple of episodes where we'll have recycled guest stars. And it, you know, it's not a series with an ensemble. I mean, uh, Angela Lansbury right. is pretty much the only one guaranteed to be in every episode. And then in later seasons, not even her. And so there's something really familiar and comforting about that. If we're changing locations every week, we're changing setting, we're changing the who the characters are every week, um, that if we can at least repeat the guest stars, it gives that sense that there's something familiar, something established about the world. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I personally, as someone who like came of age and or at least was spent part of my childhood in the 80s, like I find it, I, I agree with you. I love that idea of comfort because there is something comforting, even for people like us who are too young to really have a great connection with these established TV stars. It's still comforting for us to see that. Like it's kind of a nostalgic effect that it has, especially now, like in 2021. Like there's something... I don't know, homey and like just lovely, uh, lovely. That's the word I would use. <laughs> lovely about it that I really enjoy. Maybe because I'm just an old lady in a in a gay man's body. But I don't know. <laughs> and I'm a gay maybe, man. Maybe in that's an old, why you're you're an old lady in a in a gay man's body, and I'm a gay man in an old lady's body. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love it. So maybe that's why you know, and having grown up with old people like you know my grand my grandparents and my parents who were much who were very much in touch with who these people were. At the time, like if that makes sense, there's kind of like a multi-generational thing going on here. So I wanted to also talk about technology because the episode is very 80s in some ways that um, in how it uses video technology, especially. Mm-hmm. So when Denton dies, everyone assembles for the reading of the will. And just a total side note that um, is immaterial to what I'm saying currently, but Abby shows up for the will reading, uh, which doesn't make any sense. Unless the lawyer specifically told her that she's in the will and should be at the will reading. Right. So Abby and Jess go to the will. I mean, it's weird. Anyway, the will is actually a videotape. It's Denton, the dead man, has recorded himself telling everyone what he's bequeathed to them. And the lawyer Boswell says, this is the latest in will technology. (laughs) The thing that there's such a thing as will technology is really funny. Will technology, yes. And then later, the property of the estate has a a security guard who watches the grounds on closed-circuit TV, um, which actually becomes really important to the second Mm -hmm. murder. It's how people are able to trick um, him and everyone else in the second murder. And so I just wanted to talk a little bit about that because it seems like this estate is um, really cutting edge in terms of its technology. You know, for us now watching in the 2020s, it's all vintage technology, it's all videotape, right? And uh, it's also a trope that comes back again. Like, we'll see other wealthy estates that have closer get TV mm-hmm. and that becoming really important to how murderers commit murders and are caught and uh-huh. how people use video technology to trick each other. Um, and I think there's something wonderfully 80s about that. It is, yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, the idea that technology has some kind of, especially like video technology, has some kind of connection to truth or like to observable reality. Um, but what these moments reveal and these 80s moments in particular is just how actually that's not true. That the relationship between the recorded image and what's actually happening is 
manipulatable and easily changed for, by those with cynical or murderous motivations. And so what you see is not actually what you think you're seeing, which obviously takes really center stage in the second murder in particular, because the one crazy family member is like, I saw her ghost rising up from the from her body. Which, of course, you know, she does, but not the way that she thinks it is. So it has a multitude of meanings contained in that moment. And it's someone masquerading as the woman because they've already murdered her. And, I mean, I love the name Morgana. It's, I mean, it's perfect for this character. Like, Morgana, for those who may not know, is um, one name given to King Arthur's sister. And some variations of the myth, she's the one who seduces him and produces their bastard son, Mordred, who, of course, kills Arthur. So... The name Morgana is evocative of, like, Celtic mythology and, you know, sinister, but also new agey kind of pagan, you know, all those things. I mean, it has all these layers of connotation that is exacerbated by and emphasized by her performance that suggests that she is one of these people who kind of is a little bit, uh, as we would say nowadays, like crunchy granola. Like, that's sort of all contained within the name and in the performance. Like, she is one of those... uh, a friend of mine from grad school would have called her like a space bat. So. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, Denton, we talked about Trish's murder. Trish was murdered by the lawyer um, because Trish was the one who killed the dad and she was in on it with the lawyer. Yeah. So the lawyer had to do her in so that no one would know what he's been up to. But, um, you know, it was, she killed her own father. She drugged his horse knowing that that would likely cause injury or death to him and then gets impaled by this very slow moving gates <laughs> is a certain kind of subversiveness to murder she wrote um in terms of like like in, in, like it's a very subtle perhaps critique of Ray, reagan's a like blah, reaganomic me 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 capitalism like that there that happens again and again that we see these rich people getting i don't want to say comeuppance necessarily but in some ways, they're comeuppance for, you know, what is presumably a lifespan of exploitation and wanton cruelty to their own family, usually. Like, they're, it's not as if their their meanness is, lim- is limited to their employees. They're clearly just shitheads to their <laughs> to their families, too. So um, one of the things that stood out to me is kind of, I'm not a formalist by training, so I don't like always pay attention to like the formal elements of an image. But it was really striking how glaringly red the the hunting coats were like they were just so almost lurid i i, I was a, i was put in mind of like technicolor from you know like the the 40s and 50s and early 60s like that way that the color just wants to leap out of out at you and i mean in this case certainly it really is a harbinger of the death and violence and to come like and i think that's perhaps deliberate but even if, if it's even if it's just the technology it is nevertheless like an aspect of the image that i think really puts the viewer in mind of what is to come later on in the episode. You know, that's an interesting point. Um, and in that hunting scene, Jessica and Abby are participating. Denton, see, Denton seems like really nice. He's like, here's some, you're some rando cousin of my employee. You can come hunting with us. Here's a horse to loan you. But um, Jessica and Abby are wearing uh, neutrals in that scene. They're not wearing the red. So there's, I think, uh, something in that about how they stand out from the rest of the group and the rest of the group's uh, malice and selfishness and desire for wealth, as you're saying. Yeah, and right. I mean, of course, the only character that seems to come out of this in any way, like positively, is Forrest Tucker's character. I mean, except for the dog exploitation at the end. But he seems to be like one of the few people that seems to actually be a decent enough gentleman. 
at just at least from what we get of him. I am vehemently opposed to dog breeding, um, but we're supposed to think that he's a nice guy. He actually really cared about Denton and that Teddy is in really good hands because he mm-hmm. knows how important Teddy was to Denton. He'll take good care of him. Right. And so maybe one last thing we can talk about is the is the law, the lawyer and 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 the and the screen persona of the actor who's playing him. Because like, I think that given his sort of family friendly history prior to this, this is an interesting change then that he becomes much more of a cynical very uh i don't want to say evil character but he definitely is not particularly sympathetic either even when even before it's revealed that he's the murderer and also he ends up breaking like he breaks down in like the inquest like right after it's revealed what he's done like he breaks down into tears which is an interesting like moment of almost histrionic performance because it's just like okay let's an interesting choice and we don't we don't have the typical murder she wrote confession in this episode we don't have jessica approaching him and saying i know what you did and he's like ah you caught me let me say, tell you everything um mm-hmm. in the in, instead we get jessica at the inquest putting on a show where she shows them how teddy might have been signaled to push the button and then teddy immediately runs up to him for a treat mm-hmm. um, because he's right. done the trick now he gets the treat and so that's how jessica exposes him um, so I think it's it's telling that he breaks down because he isn't given that moment to confess out of redemption right. in the same way that a lot of murderers on this series are. Right. And it's also interesting that the the uh, the, the director of the inquest is just like, yeah, sure. Random person that has no you know actual authority to, to do this demonstration. Why not? Like, why not let you just do <laughs> take up my time like he seems he's very indulgent like you know whenever anyone raises an objection to her to jessica's performance he's like no let it go i want to see what's going to happen <laughs> which it's is another so, one of those moments <laughs> it's such a murder she wrote moment like, yeah, like first of all why are we even having this inquest like what is this procedure uh and then second of all if we're having this inquest why are we letting someone touch the evidence and put on this whole elaborate show um yeah and it's, it's so implausible is- that is especially striking because so often Jessica's in opposition to the um, representatives of the state. Like, usually it's the criminal justice system that she's working, if not against, but certainly is in opposition to because they don't think, see her as legitimate. So it's really interesting that we have at this early stage this these representatives of the state, whatever they are, giving her their blessing, essentially, to intervene in this investigation. Yeah, although we do see her having tension with the actual sheriff. So this right. is the coroner's inquest so presumably this is the coroner but i don't know why a coroner would need to interview witnesses and examine evidence it seems to me like the coroner would just cut open the body but whatever i'm not a coroner i just look at them on tv um but the actual (laughs) sheriff the actual sheriff doesn't like her she exploits the stupidity and well naivety i think good naturedness of his deputy Uh Um, but the actual sheriff has comes they they butt heads and she calls him at one point a man of limited vision with a gossip mongers mentality which is like the best jb fletcher burn yes it sure is oh man she she makes use of her formidable intellect in ways that are an envy to the rest of us. The rest of us can only I would like to envy. see her at some point just like break down and lose her words and just be like, you know what? You're a meanie. <laughs> but no, it's it's you're a man of limited vision with a gossip monger's mentality. I mean, aren't we all really, though? I mean, don't we all have a gossip monger's mentality? <laughs> <laughs> and doesn't Jessica Fletcher? <laughs> that is an excellent point. <laughs> well, T, is there anything else that you want to say about this episode? 
I don't think so. I mean, we've mined it pretty deeply. I mean, it's not, I would say, not one of the more substantive episodes, despite the, you know, Agreed. the riches in terms of its, um, its casting. It feels like a filler episode to some degree, like that you would expect of, you know, of these 24, se- 24 episode seasons. Like, you're not going to have, not every episode's going to be a gem. So I think this is a perfectly fine, serviceable episode that doesn't really have a lot to say. Agreed. The shtick is about Teddy inheriting and the actual murder investigation uh, isn't really that profound. Um, Jessica ultimately does all of the investigating. It doesn't seem like anyone is doing any investigating at all. And the solution is really simple. It was kind of right in front of them the whole time. So no real twists, no real surprises in this episode, but just the fun of seeing the horses and, and Teddy and Next week, we'll get something that is much more, I think, sophisticated in terms of plot and what it's trying to accomplish. Yeah, we're getting into some noir stuff next week, I think. So, so we hope that you will join us back for our discussion next week of Lovers and Other Killers. But for It's a Dog's Life, that's about it. I'm Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. See you next time. Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.